Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we discuss the transition in Washington, D.C., reflected on the past four years, learn about fast food in black America, and shoot over the history of the Fraternal Order of Police. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now and the final installment, I hope, of the Trump Diaries. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 22nd, 2021. Mario Smith and Jamie Trecker welcomed an all-star cast to discuss the end of the Trump era on Inauguration Day. Alan Linton and Michaela Blaze discussed the ascension of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency. John Daly talked about UBI. And in this segment, the SEIU's Greg Kelly chatted with us about the fate of the Affordable Care Act and Mercy Hospital. Now that we have a brand new administration with, with, with the willingness to listen um, and also the opportunity to kind of fix the fracture between uh, the government, the federal government and unions. Um, what's your position and approach to the Biden administration when it comes to Mercy Hospital um, and, and other hospitals of the like that are threatening to be shut down? Well, well thank you for having me on. As to, on Mercy Hospital, that's just an interesting question. I first always like to remind folks, we don't actually have any members that work at Mercy Hospital. Um, the work that we do in support of Mercy truly is around helping support an, inst- an important institution in our community. Uh, my daughter was born at, my oldest daughter was born at Mercy Hospital. Sir, uh, I was born at Mercy Hospital as well. Is that Thank right? you. I am the most famous so person ever born at Mercy besides your daughter. <laughs> I believe my dad actually was born at Mercy. I am the third most famous person <laughs> ever born at Mercy Hospital. Um, so I was born at Cook County Hospital, which is. Um, does is filled with members of SEIU, so I kind of yep. win this conversation. Thank I you. was still born at Mercy. <laughs> I'm gonna. Sh- I'll shut Mikhail's mic. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's all right. So, so it's an important institution, and and um, and so we want. We're all. We're trying to be in uh, solidarity with with the community as well. Like I think the Teamsters have members there, um, and so we've been working really hard. And the important thing to remember about Mercy. We consider it a safety net hospital, uh, and we do represent a number of safety net hospitals like, you know, uh, St. Bernard, mm-hmm. Roseland, and others um, that Mercy sort of fit in that category of hospitals that have been under-resourced for a long time. And so we say that uh, these hospitals need to be better resourced um, because they serve such important roles in our communities. I'm not just talking about the jobs. That's an important part, but also just the care and you know but we know how this works usually what happens they will sort of start cutting the plug on these places and then people will sort of slowly stop going as much uh and then they say oh because our you know patient load is low uh we're going to cut back on even more services and then they wind up closing we saw it at michael reese we saw it at um metro south out in blue island uh and they saw we saw it in westlake out in uh west suburbs it's a pattern that uh, these hospitals engage, at least the parent companies engage in. And so we're saying, we're drawing a line in the sand at Mercy saying, okay, Trinity, you know, the parent company, if you want to be focused on your profits, right, this is what they've been doing, by the way, focused mm-hmm. on profit, big multi-billion dollar uh, outfit, um, sell the place uh, to some folks who will take care of the people who need that hospital uh, and operate in a non-profit fashion as opposed to a for-profit fashion uh, like you're operating now. So that's what we've been working with folks like 
Representative Robinson, he's been a great leader on that, uh, as well as other community groups as well, like Coco uh, and others. Greg, this is uh, Jamie. You know, there is going to be a major Supreme Court decision coming up in two weeks about the Affordable Care Act. And I wondered um, if you had any thoughts on that. You know, uh, I actually, my wife and I get our health care through the ACA. And, you know, I think there are some people fairly worried about it. You know, this is something Trump and the Republicans have tried to torpedo for years. Uh, I know that you don't necessarily deal directly with that, but I know it is of concern to your members as well. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and what you expect? Oh, absolutely. We we are very much, we fought really hard to get, uh, albeit flawed, uh, it was an important step, though, uh, to get the ACA passed. We fought early on to get it passed, and we've been fighting ever since to make sure that, uh, you know, most of it's been able to stay in place. And so if it, you know, if it's gone, if, if the court strikes down to an extent, we're not as concerned about it now because of the, administra- the Biden administration. There things that the administration can do um, sort of to uh, mitigate against whatever the decision the court might make now. Uh, and, and I think also Biden has talked about um, the possibility of a public option. Um, you know, the Senate is kind of tricky because there's a majority sort of, but there's no super, you know, filibuster-proof majority. Um, I just think we're not, we're concerned about it, but not as much because we think there are some fixes that can be made. Um, that could mitigate against any really bad decision that the court might make now. Now, this conversation, if Trump was reelected, we'd, you know, it'd be a very, very concerning uh, situation. Can you speak to any of the conversations that are happening on the labor side about really, really digging in and, and becoming part and, and, be, and, and having their membership reflect the community? Yeah, I think it's a, a mini-decade problem. Uh, a lot of attention to Dr. King's book, Chaos of Community. He spoke to it back in 1966 when he wrote uh, that book. So it's a really long-standing issue. Um, yes. And I would say that there, it's, it's, it is a mixed bag. Um, so my union is you know, predominantly made of... of uh, black and brown workers, and and our members aren't trades people. Uh, you know, they're home care workers, hospital workers, and nursing home workers. Um, and so they have a. It's, it's a. You know, obviously we're in the house of labor, but uh, our membership is different. Um, having said that, though, the challenges around um, the trades is basically what you're referring to. Uh, I always say to people, one. Um, there just aren't enough trade jobs, really, to you know, change, to move the needle, right? Um, you know, the biggest trade union in Chicago only has you know several thousand members, whereas I might have, I have 90,000 90, members. Most of our members, most black folks, aren't going to go into a trade. Um, they may work in a nursing home. They may work in some other service type industry. So, I always like to give people that perspective. They are important. Those are well-paying jobs certainly pay better than uh, most of uh, the jobs that are available now. But I just want to make it clear that there just is a finite number of trades jobs. So I would say that first. Um, the second part of it is I think even as, you know, there's been a lot more attention given to, um, you know, equity and so forth, it's also happened in Chicago in particular just as there's been this dramatic downturn in the economy. And so, what you see amongst a fair number of the trades and others 
is really a, a, a slowdown uh, in the work. And so that's made it even more difficult to push an equity message, uh, given that folks that are already in are even um, are clamoring even more for the jobs that they already have. So I know as we've tried to push the issue of equity, they, they remind us, look at how many cranes are up in the sky now, right? That's one of the measurements that they make in terms of how well the city is doing. And there's no question the economy with COVID has had a really negative impact on the job market, particularly in the trades. But I would argue, uh, and you know, we continue to try to make the argument to them that you need to start that pipeline now, right? That there's nothing stopping you from creating apprenticeships. Um, and then there are unions that are really intentional about doing it, like the carpenters, um, you know, do relative to the rest, do a good job of, of pushing apprenticeships and so forth. Um, but we have a long ways to go, like much of the rest of society. And it's our hope that we can begin to have those kind of conversations as things open up. But telling them, don't wait till things open up to start the pipeline, because the pipeline needs to, need to be open now. Uh, but again, my, my first point, there are, X number, there are a finite number of those jobs. There are excellent jobs, and we all should be fighting to get them. Uh, but they just they aren't going to move the needle in the way that organizing you know, uh, service sector workers might be. Mr. Mr. President, this is John Daly. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And I wanted to say thank you to not just yourself, but your members. Obviously, during COVID, this this is a time where, where your membership is is helping everybody uh, through this pandemic and putting themselves at, at risk. And, and um, I, I'm, I'm curious, I, I read the other day that, that you're part of a group creating an organization of a next generation leadership. Um, mm -hmm. Curious to hear about that. It, it all sort of came about in the, based upon a series of conversations that a number of folks was having about like, what's the future of, of leadership uh, in the city, particularly black leadership in the city of Chicago, and it's like been an ongoing conversation. And really smart people like Jonathan Swain and Alex Sims like took it to heart and and actually reached out to every ask you know people that I wouldn't probably agree with on, on much of anything mm -hmm. um, politically. Uh, said that yes, we need to be sort of proactive and thinking about what does the future of leadership look like in the city. And as you can see, it's such an array of people. It's really very impressive. Uh, and so I'm very excited about the possibility of us coming together. And, and it's, it's not so much uh, indoctrination. It really is around sort of the, the nuts and bolts of civic engagement, right? You know, what if you want to be a policy expert? How do you go about, what do you, what, how do you become a policy expert, right? Um, what do you, how do you learn about what labor does or collective bargaining? How do you find out? If you want to be a, an investment banker, or uh, how do you do this stuff? Um, and so I'm really excited about it. You know, we're still figuring out, you know, what it is exactly. Um, but, you know, we're off to a good start. People are committed to it uh, and want to see it move forward. It's about moving, like, the next generation um, into, like, understanding how, you know, how to, you know, uh, learn civic engagement, how it works, and how to amass power, all these things that um, historically we used to do, which is another part of it as well. You know, we talk a lot about Harold Washington in the city, and what people don't talk much about is Harold Washington, one of the things that was so great about him is that he connected 
to so many different aspects of the city. Um, so, you know, he, he connected with labor. He connected with, uh, you know, the nationalists. He connected with, you know, corporate folks. Uh, and they didn't have these silos. Um, but over the last, you know, 30-plus years or so, we've been very siloed, and, and we see the impact of that. And so this is an attempt to sort of break down some of those walls, get in dialogue, and to build a bench or to build a future um, and share with folks the info that we have. And people can accept it or reject it, but it's just an opportunity for folks to be in conversation with each other and in conversation with the future. Chuck Mertz chatted with Marsha Chatelain on how fast food corporations became deeply intertwined with black American life. Corporations such as McDonald's not only provided cheap food to the community, the franchises themselves became an important stepping stone into the black middle class. But was this a Faustian bargain? This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Historian Marsha Chatlin is author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Welcome to This is Hell, Marsha. Hi, thank you for having me. This is a fascinating book that is, I, I just found this really interesting. And even like the odd little trivial things that I stumbled across, like you point out how Dave Thomas worked directly for uh, the Colonel for the Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then he started up Arthur Treacher's, which I vaguely remember from my childhood. And then he started up Burger Chef, which I vaguely remember from my childhood until he had Wendy's, how all these entrepreneurs came out of fast food franchises. Even the the concept of uh, Marriott's franchises came out of uh, fast food. How much has fast food had an, had an impact on our economy, on our culture, even if we, and to what degree do you think we recognize that impact? Well, thank you so much for having me on this show. And I so appreciate the fact that um, this is a format in which we take seriously um, these questions about racial capitalism and these questions about um, 
accountability, right? That what the state fails to do, the marketplace will convince us that they can do it. And so with franchising and the fast food industry, it's really interesting the ways that um, many of us can imagine that we can actually like distance ourselves from it by not eating it. And so this is something that I sometimes hear from a certain class of like liberal elites. Like I don't eat fast food, my kids don't eat fast food, but I don't think they realize that fast food is hyper um, determining all of the ways that we interact with um, with the food system. So um, you may not feed your kids McDonald's, but they're eating dino nuggets, right? Like the fact that we think of children's food as nuggets of chicken is part of the way that fast food um, shapes our thinking. The fact that our cars are fitted to allow us to consume inside of them is part of the legacy of fast food. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write franchise is because so much of the body of literature about the fast food industry in the US kind of takes two tones. One is a celebration of the free market capitalists and the innovators that created the form, or it is um, an excoriation of the people who eat fast food because of the health implications, or there's a conversation about wages and labor, which is also important, but there's something else in the middle. And I think that thing is the way that fast food is really predicated on our nation's long history of not only racial exclusion and discrimination, but the fact that we often turn to markets to solve the problems that have been created um, by uh, racist structures within, um, you know, our, our common society. Yeah, and I found that really fascinating that racism, which is imposed by capitalism, that people would think that capitalism might be able to save them from that racism. Uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But you start by writing of the August 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri, following the police killing of Michael Brown Jr. You write, of all the places that represented Ferguson in the public eye of that summer, the McDonald's restaurant at 9131 West Florissant uh, best symbolized the interplay between racial justice and the marketplace in America, past and present. It you you write that this McDonald's is the descendant of a somewhat bizarre but incredibly powerful marriage between a fast food behemoth and the fight for civil rights. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 and the ensuing urban upheavals, the movement for racial justice pivoted its focus toward black business ownership. Hamburger, uh, fried uh, chicken, taco chains eagerly met the gaze of those interested in using business development as a strategy to quell unrest and introduced fast food franchising to inner city black communities. So how much have uh, fast food franchises been a boon to Black-owned businesses in communities of color, because I want to talk about the benefits that can happen if we're going to also talk about the problems that they create. Well, you know, I think that this is such a such an int- important point to raise, because people often ask me after they read the book or hear me speak, you know, was it all bad or all good, or is it a net, you know, net positive? How do we assess it? And I think in terms of what fast food did in these communities in 1968 are not the same things that these fast food restaurants are doing for communities in 2021. So from the perspective of someone like Herman Petty, who was the first African-American to franchise a McDonald's on the South Side in Chicago, you know, reopening that McDonald's and making it um, a symbol of black owned business and being a philanthropist in the community and employing local people, you know, 
how can I argue against it considering the dire conditions in which people were living at the time? And at the same time, I think we have to recognize that once that is presented as viable public policy or a reasonable response to the reasons why people were um, so angry at the time is the problem. Because what tends to happen in moments of racial unrest, and we saw the same thing in 2020 after the killing of George Floyd, is that you know communities are consumed by the problems of police brutality, of joblessness, of under-resourced schools, of inadequate housing, right? Like the structure is so broken. And then the solution becomes buy from Black businesses or more businesses to employ people. And we know full well that most small businesses don't have the capacity to really lift people out of poverty. And so it's the sleight of hand that I am so concerned about. And so, you know, from the view of 68 or 72, a few Black-owned businesses in Black communities, great, that's fine. And at the same time, that this is not a sustainable practice if we are really serious about getting um, to the heart of racial injustice. And you point out how prior to 1968, the founding generation of fast food franchises or fa- France, uh, fast food franchises worked hard, made wise decisions, and made the most of every opportunity. For many of the first families of fast food franchising, they were connected not only by place, many of them from Southern California, but they were also racially homogenous and privileged in their time. The people who established the franchises that are so easily identified by their logos, their slogans, and the distinct taste of their French fries over competitors were all white Americans. Americans whose whiteness worked in their favor. How did their whiteness work in their favor? And maybe conversely, how could non-whites be locked out of the pioneering days of franchising? Well, you know, so much of business is, um, you know, it's such a it's such a lie when we talk about, um, you know, the hard work that goes into the establishment of business. You know, business success is really contingent on access to capital, um, extension of credit, sometimes family wealth and um, opportunism. And so this early generation of, of fast food folks, um, they just were given a chance, many chances to fail and then succeed. So if you look at the McDonald's brothers, they failed at a lot of businesses. They, you know, they wanted to run a movie theater. They had a hot dog stand. They had um, tried their hand at a number of things and they were still extended um, the financial opportunity to start McDonald's. And when we think about all of the various um, components to create the fast food industry. It isn't just the idea on how to make burgers. It's also about the highway system that obliterated communities of color to allow so many cars to travel through um, to drive-ins. It's about residential segregation that created the bedroom communities of the suburbs and the lending practices that kept neighborhoods all white and the GI Bill that worked in concert with this. And so there are all of these different um, places that fast food emerge and they emerge because of the incredible financial um, value of whiteness. And so when we think about this early history of the food industry, a lot of it's predicated not only on exclusion, but then when we see the ways that in African-American communities, black business had an outsized role in people's lives because that black business owner, that person who was able to create a financially stable um, funeral home or restaurant or establishment, they were also negotiating the terms with white city leaders about access to schools. They were helping to get someone out of jail if they were, you know, caught by the police and they were trying to prevent a lynching. And so you start to see in one community business 
being built on all of these policies and all of these practices that exclude uh, people of color. And then black communities, you see all of this power given to business people because of um, a lack of connection to the larger um, promises of the state. Now, no, to just talk about this McDonald's situation for a second, because I want to... Let's make sure I understand this correctly. You write that the roots of the contemporary conversation about race and fast food began with the founding of McDonald's in the 40s. And as you were mentioning, when Maurice and Richard McDonald established their hamburger drive-in, they may have been unconcerned with the racist or racial politics of their age. Yet segregation, racial restrictions on housing, discriminatory financial lending, and the growth of a highway system that decimated African-American communities allowed the men all the advantages necessary to establish a formidable business. So whether they recognized that this was due to racial restrictions or not, and that's their issue. Uh, they, you know, that's what was helping them become so successful. So, do, how important is institutional racism in the form of housing segregation, discriminatory lending, urban planning to the success of McDonald's? Could McDonald's have had the success they have had without the post World War II institutional racism? You know, this is so hard because um, burgers are delicious. So sure, people would have purchased them. And, um, you know, the McDonald's brothers were very smart in what they did. And at the same time, I I don't think that we can ever um, um, uncouple American capitalist structures from the ways that race um, allow them to kind of exist. And so what I can say is this. The entire kind of selling of McDonald's um, in those years, especially after Ray Kroc took it over as a franchise and moved it um, to uh, Illinois, I think that all of that um, is the sum total of ideas about the American consumer marketplace. And so much of that marketplace was about the exclusion of African-Americans and violence against people. And so um, if you look at the early ads of McDonald's where, you know, it's these white families that they're in their cars, they're going from their suburban homes, they're going to the drive-in, the child is um, considered, you know, the main target of the advertising. It All of those things are developed based on an idea of racial exclusion, right? So even if the bank lending wasn't as generous, and even if there wasn't housing segregation, I think that the logics of the marketplace are all about um, creating a vision or an idea of how the world should be. So I don't know if we could ever, you know, like imagine a different way of business proceeding in the United States. What's this? I'm going to teach you how the recorder works, Kyle. No, it looks like I got the aptitude for such technologically advanced learning. Jamie, want another one? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Kyle? Nah, I'm good. You don't look good. His producer quit on him. No, I mean, he looks like he's had a few, but he hasn't ordered anything from me today. Uh, no, no, I ain't done what you think I done. What are you talking about? Sometimes he BYOBs. You got anything to hand over? I've been coming here since before the Mashuski tribe called this place their own, mind you. Ah, whatever, Kyle. Listen, Kyle, I know you miss John, but you need to focus on size matters. Yeah, more like nothing matters. Stop it. I know someone who would love to... Here you to... go, Jamie. Thanks, Eric. Listen, I, I know it. someone I who would love to help out, but you need to be a little more Hold independent. On. Before you throw out the ultimatum, gotta do something while old banana brain ain't looking at yeah. that. Just... Yeah, that's it. What? Yeah, that's it. What? 
Did you just take a swig out of a medicine bottle? Yeah, don't say nothing to nobody. I got my lumpin' bubbles in here. Lumpin' bubbles? Yeah, lump. Are you not familiar with the cannon? Lumpin' bubbles, my very own concoction, as heard on Size Matters Episode 3. Go back and listen to it. It smells like dish soap. That mostly is. It doubles as bubble fluid for children and a discreet adult drink. You are drunk, aren't you? Oh, good question, Jamie. He's actually entered an altered state of emotional consciousness. And I told him if he ever brings a hooch in here again, I would ban him for life. Who's life? You ain't seen nothing. I've been standing right over this the whole time. Yeah, way to be a creep. Kyle doesn't want to learn how to use the portable. He's right, I don't. You're upset about John, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Dude, move on, man. Get out there and learn how this stupid little recorder works and record stuff. I don't know. I do. I'm going to do the dumbest thing since opening my own radio station. I'm going to let you pick the next producer for Size Matters. Whoa, 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 Ed, no, that's, that's a little too much control here. No, it isn't. It's Kyle's turn to prove himself. That's right, I can do it. I... <laughs> he just burped up a bubble, look. Sorry, I just... Oh, no, don't pop the bubble. Code 74. Uh, code 74. This is not a drill, oh, I'm people. So no sorry. one. Pop Ed, I'm so the sorry. bubble. Continue no. to the exit. Just please Turn exit along. the bar. Take Continue care of the exit. I got it. Pop I got it. I got it. Oh, my God. I need that stuff. My nostrils are burning. What did I say? Just move. I think I'm going to throw up. Get out of my way. This week on what I hope is the final edition of the Trump Diaries. Pardons reportedly are selling for $2 million a pop. Military and police aided and abetted the rioters causing new security concerns. Biden delivers a powerful speech as Trump skips town. And Trump now faces a billion dollars in debt. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1457, January 15th. Dozens of people on the FBI's terrorist watch list were in Washington, D.C. on the day of the Capitol insurrection, the majority of them being suspected white supremacists whose past conduct was so alarming, their names have been previously added to the National Terrorist Screening Database. Federal prosecutors said there was strong evidence the mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol planned to capture and assassinate elected officials. Concerning federal investigators is that video shows several members of that mob moving quickly and in tight formation, suggesting pre-planning and military training. One man was arrested with hundreds of zip ties. He apparently planned to bind and try members of Congress. Secret Service officers evacuated Vice President Mike Pence from the Senate chamber just moments before the violent mob that stormed the Capitol reached the second floor landing in the Senate. Some of the mob were looking to hang Pence for perceived treason. Democratic lawmakers have accused their Republican colleagues of leading groups on reconnaissance tours of the Capitol on January 5th. A, quote, extremely high number of outside groups were let into the building on January 5th at a time when most tours were restricted because of the pandemic. The groups, quote, could only have gained access to the Capitol complex from a member of Congress or a member of their staff. At least one protest organizer said he coordinated with three House Republicans. Incoming freshman Lauren Babert of Colorado was named as one of those tour organizers. Babert has made waves for openly carrying a gun into the chamber and refusing to let security search her bags. Apple police officers said they wouldn't be surprised if some lawmakers helped organize the attack as well. 
Trump issued a video appealing for nonviolence after the House voted to impeach him for incitement of insurrection. Under heavy pressure from his advisors who noted he faces significant legal liability, Trump began that video decrying a, quote, unprecedented assault on free speech, referring to his ban from Twitter. Trump offered no regrets, took no blame, and did not concede that Biden won a free and fair election. Many of the lawyers who defended Trump in his previous impeachment trial, including Jay Sukalow and White House counsel Pat Cipollone, have declined to defend him during the second trial. And unemployment claims have jumped to 965,500, the highest since last August. Day 1,458, January 16th. Federal authorities are now investigating several Bitcoin transactions made to right-wing figures ahead of the assault in the Capitol. On December 8th, someone made a simultaneous transfer of about $500,000 to 22 different virtual wallets belonging to right-wing organizations. Those transactions have been linked to the Proud Boys, which apparently provided material support for the riot. Investigators have now opened 275 criminal cases and charged 98 people in connection with that riot so far. U.S. taxpayers were billed $3,000 a month, and that is more than $144,000 to date, to rent an apartment so Secret Service agents for Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner could use the bathroom while standing guard. Despite the fact that the Kushner's home had 6.5 bathrooms, agents were told they could not use any of them. After resorting to a porta potty as well as the bathrooms at the nearby home of former President Barack Obama and the not-so-nearby residence of Vice President Mike Pence, the service finally rented a basement studio with a bathroom from a neighbor. The Secret Service has repeatedly incurred serious costs from providing protection to the president's children. The Trump Organization charged the federal government at least $250,000 for agents lodging when the trio and their families visited Trump properties. Trump has also unusually requested Secret Service protection for all his adult children for the next six months. More than two million people have now died from the coronavirus worldwide. The coronavirus death toll passed 400,000 in America and is now expected to hit half a million deaths next month. In a related story, Operation Warp Speed inexplicably waited more than two months to approve a plan to distribute the vaccines, leaving states with little time to prepare for the largest vaccination campaign in American history. President Biden said he plans to retire the Operation Warp Speed name, citing, quote, failures by the Trump administration. Day 1459, January 17th. Members of Trump's failed presidential campaign played key roles in running the rally that spawned the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Paperwork filed for permits undercuts Trump's claims that the event was the brainchild of grassroots supporters. In fact, at least a dozen people connected with Trump's campaign ran and staged that rally. A pro-Trump nonprofit group called Women for America First hosted the Save America rally. That permit lists seven people in staff positions for the event who weeks earlier had been paid thousands of dollars by Trump's 2020 re-election campaign. Other staff scheduled to be on site during that rally had close ties to the White House. Megan Powers was listed as one of two operations managers. Her LinkedIn profile says she was Trump's campaign director of operations into January. Maggie Mulvaney, who is the niece of former top Trump aide Mick Mulvaney, is also listed on the permit as, quote, VIP lead. The D.C. Attorney General's office notified Donald Trump Jr. it wants to interview him. D.C. has sued the Trump Organization and the Presidential Inaugural Committee, alleging they wasted more than $1 million raised by that nonprofit by, quote, grossly overpaying to use the Trump Hotel in Washington for the inauguration. 
and Trump's 1776 commission released a report it called the definitive patriotic view of U.S. history. The 18-member commission was formed after the social justice protest this summer and in reaction to the New York Times' 1619 project. Trump insisted that those protests were the result of, quote, left-wing indoctrination in our schools and required a new pro-American curriculum. A review of the commission's report showed that 26% of the content was simply lifted from other sources without citations. The report was also widely panned by historians as grossly inaccurate. Day 1460, January 18th. As worries grow ahead of President Biden's inauguration on Wednesday, military vehicles and police surrounded state houses across the country as officials braced for pro-Trump protests. 19 states have activated the National Guard, including here in Illinois. Despite a smattering of arrests and small demonstrations, the country was mostly quiet on the weekend. The FBI was searching for a Capitol rioter who was alleged to have stolen a laptop or hard drive from the office of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Named as Riley June Williams, she is further alleged to have arranged the sale of that laptop to Russian intelligence officials. She was in custody late last night after she turned herself in. And a promise from the Trump administration that it would release a stockpile of reserved vaccine doses turned out to be false. No such reserve existed because the Trump administration had already distributed what was available at the end of December, taking the doses directly off the manufacturing line. Nevertheless, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar announced the administration would, quote, be releasing the entire supply for order by states rather than holding second doses in reserve. Several governors who had expanded their vaccination programs on that promise called it deceptive and criminal. Day 1461, January 19th. On his final day in office, Trump struck a defiant tone. In a video released to government accounts, Trump claimed, quote, we did what we came here to do and so much more. I took on the tough battles, the hardest fights, the most difficult choices, because that's what you elected me to do. Trump then warned that the greatest danger now facing the country was, quote, a loss of confidence in our national greatness. Trump closed by saying, I am especially proud to be the first president in decades who has started no new wars. I want you to know the movement we started is only just beginning. Trump also continues to falsely insist he won the 2020 election as he prepares to give a slew of pardons. Trump is expected to pardon or commute the sentence of more than 100 people in the next two days. Multiple outlets also report that Trump's allies are trying to sell pardons. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has been remanded to the FBI after allegedly offering to obtain a pardon for $2 million. Mitch McConnell, the outgoing Senate Republican leader, publicly acknowledged that the mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th was provoked by Trump. McConnell told the Senate on the Senate floor, quote, the mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. McConnell is thought to be leaning toward convicting Trump in his impeachment trial. A federal appeals court threw out a Trump affordable clean energy rule, calling it tortured. The rule, which Trump had tried to pass to weaken and undermine climate change policies, was the latest in an unprecedented series of legal losses for that department. Under Trump, the EPA tried and repeatedly failed to gut laws, largely due to incoherent and incorrect legal arguments. Federal prosecutors have filed conspiracy charges against three members of the Oath Keepers group for their role in the attack on the Capitol. The three were allegedly part of a group who had planned to breach the Capitol on opposite sides to hunt for lawmakers in an organized and practiced fashion so they could make citizens' arrests. In charging papers, the FBI pointed to a Facebook message that said, quote, All members are in the tunnels under the Capitol. Seal them in and turn on the gas. 
Trump's Homeland Security Department has entered into last-minute agreements to sabotage the Biden administration's efforts to unwind its immigration policies. The DHS signed legal agreements with state and local authorities that would require the agency to delay making changes for 180 days. Coronavirus deaths are now rising in nearly two-thirds of American states amid evidence that a new and highly contagious variant is taking hold. We have now passed 24 million cases nationwide, and that is accelerating. States are now begging the federal government to limit travel from countries where the variants have taken hold, such as Britain, South Africa, and Brazil, but it appears to be already too late. In LA, one in three is believed to have been infected with the virus since the beginning of the pandemic. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo equated equity with fascism on his final day, tweeting that multiculturalism is not who America is. He then claimed all the isms only points in one direction, authoritarianism. Day 1462, January 20th. Ahead of Biden's inauguration, 12 National Guard troops were removed from duties after they were found to have links to right-wing extremist movements. Also, it was reported that QAnon extremists discussed on Telegram posing as National Guard members in an effort to disrupt the inauguration. Trump issued 143 last-minute pardons but did not attempt to pardon himself or his family. Instead, he granted clemency to a remarkable set of corrupt politicians and allies, including Stephen Bannon, his former chief strategist, fundraiser Elliot Broidy, former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, rapper Lil Wayne, and former area mayor Casey Erlocker. Netflix star Joe Exotic did not and remains behind bars. Trump is leaving office with serious financial clouds hanging over his head. Many of his resorts were losing millions of dollars a year even before the pandemic struck. Revenues for the Trump Organization fell nearly 38% in 2020 as the coronavirus took a steep toll on hospitality. Trump also has $1 billion in loans that must be repaid within three years. He has already burned through much of his cash and easy-to-sell assets. A decade-old IRS audit threatens to cost him more than $100 million, and due to his toxic brand, lenders are now refusing to work with him. Trump's last words were, quote, have a good life, we will see you soon, at the end of off-the-cup remarks, delivered to his supporters at Joint Base Andrews. Trump discarded a prepared statement and ignored aides who asked him to thank Biden by name, saying, quote, I hope they don't raise your taxes, but if they do, I told you so. Trump ended up saying, quote, we will be back in some form. Trump then left to the strains of YMCA by the village people. His vice president did not attend his farewell event. Trump did, however, leave the traditional note for Biden in the Resolute desk. It is unclear what that note said. Biden said, quote, the president wrote a very generous letter. Because it was private, I won't talk about it until I talk to him, but it was generous. Melania Trump, however, declined to write the traditional thank you notes to the White House resident staff who cared for her and her family for the last four years. Instead, a low-level East Wing staffer wrote them, quote, in her voice, and Melania signed her name. Day one, January 21st, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris officially kicked off a new era in Washington as they were sworn in as the 46th president and the first woman, and the first woman of color, to be vice president. Biden gave a powerful speech calling for unity and saying democracy has prevailed. He also took a not-so-veiled shot at outlets such as Fox News, who in his words, quote, lied for power and profit. Biden then began an unprecedented assault on his predecessor's policies, signing 17 executive orders mere hours after being sworn in. Biden upended Trump's pandemic response, reversed his environmental agenda, 
threw out his anti-immigration policies, moved to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, moved to rejoin the World Health Organization, and ended Trump's travel ban on predominantly Muslim countries. Biden is also moving quickly in Congress. He has asked for $1.9 trillion to bolster the recovery. Harris also sworn three new senators in an act that tipped the balance of power in D.C. Democrats now control all three branches of power, albeit by slim margins. Biden also shook up Trump's deep state. Michael Pack, a Trump appointee who controversially sought to remake the Voice of America service, resigned. Biden also fired General Counsel Peter Robb from the National Labor Board. Biden had asked Robb, a Trump appointee with 10 months left to go, to resign. Robb refused, claiming his removal would, quote, set an unfortunate precedent. Biden sacked him. Meanwhile, members of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, who are among Trump's staunchest fans, have broken with him. In statements made on Telegram, the group called him a total failure and weak and urged their supporters to stop attending rallies and protests held for Trump or the Republican Party. Trump has discussed forming a new political party and apparently wants to call it the Patriot Party. He has a $250 million war chest to make that a reality. Trump's final approval rating was 29%. He leaves under the cloud of impeachment. That trial could begin next week. He is also under possible indictment in the state of New York. 400,000 Americans and climbing died due to his neglect over coronavirus. Some 7,000 children were seized and separated from their parents on our border. Trump is widely considered the worst president in American history. Thank you for being with us through these dreadful four years. These have been the Trump Diaries. The Pocket Guide to Hell spoke to journalist Amy Levitt about the history of the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge No. 7. The FOP has become a lightning rod for criticism under new leader John Cantazera. Levitt lays out how the Lodge's past is impacting our present. Pocket Guide to Hell, Lumpen's newest show, airs Thursdays at 9 a.m. Today, benefits from the battle over the eight-hour workday are shared with law enforcement officers as their union, the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge No. 7, is one of the strongest in the city. This strength, some have argued, has, direct, has been directed against reform. And here to talk with us about the history of police unions in the city, which he recently wrote about for Chicago Magazine, is journalist Amy Levitt. Amy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I wanted to start out by just kind of getting a general sense of what led you to write this piece about FOP Lodge 7. Like, why, why now? It's a really boring story. Actually, um, my editor at Chicago Magazine suggested it. <laughs> but, um, you know, over the summer, everybody's been talking so much about police unions and our own police union. Um, they've been without a contract since, well, FOP has been without a contract since 2017, so they were about to start negotiating their new contract. They had a new president, so you know, everything was starting. And then, of course, the police had a hard time this summer because of George Floyd, because of the protests, because things are changing and they are not. So that's, I think, the thinking that led Chicago Magazine to want to do this story. And, and just so we have, uh, just so we're, we're all clear about this, FOP Lodge Seven is is one of several unions that that um, that represent patrolmen, uh, but it's the most powerful. Is that true? It's the only union that represents the, patrolmen in Chicago. Only. Okay. Yeah, the captains, the sergeants, and the lieutenants each have their own unions. They're represented by a different union than FOP. But one thing that you know, I was really interested to to learn in in your article is 
as I mentioned uh, to you as we were kind of getting ready for this, um, you know, earlier in this episode, we, we talked with a couple of people about the story of, of the bombing in Haymarket Square and the push for the eight-hour workday and the kind of union movement that kind of grew out of that moment. Uh, but the Fraternal Order of Police, at least the, the lodge here in Chicago, you know, it doesn't date to that, that kind of period of kind of like union growth, um, right? We don't really, I mean, we don't see it until the early 1960s. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about like how the Fraternal Order of uh, Police, um, Lodge Number 7, kind of comes into being here in Chicago and then sort of gets the influence that it currently wields? Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, Chicago was the last of the big cities to unionize its police department. Um, for a long time, the police were part of the daily machine. Like, if they, like all the benefits were negotiated through handshake deals with Mayor Daly. He called himself the patrolman's friend, which I think is kind of funny. But anyway, um, if they wanted raises, you know, the things like normal people want from their unions mm-hmm. and, you know, work benefits, they would go through him. But then in the 60s, there were um, several libel police unions going on in Chicago. At the time, um, there was Orlando Wilson. He was the new police superintendent. He was brought in after this huge scandal on the northwest side, like police cars were transporting stolen goods, mm-hmm. and it made the police department look really, really bad, so they needed reform. And uh, Wilson, he'd been like a professor of criminology, so he really, he had no political stakes in this game. He was in California, I think. So, um, but the police did not want to be reformed in the ways that he wanted to reform. So they formed, like, these unions, and there were several of them, and they were all, like, kind of jockeying for supremacy. And then, finally, in the 70s, Giggly said, the police, okay, police, you can unionize. And the police voted on whichever union they wanted, and they chose FOP, mm-hmm. which uh, it became very strong in cities across the country because part of its uh, thing, I guess, it's, it had a police bill of rights. Mm-hmm. which meant that investigations and stuff were covered in its contract. So if you had an FOP contract, it meant that the union was defending you, and you know you had these lawyers that would come in, and they would basically get you out of trouble. So that was the great appeal of FOP. Why, why did Daly uh, decide to actually allow, start allowing the union, I guess, in 1976? I'm sorry, I don't really remember. You don't have to say that. Uh, just like that, but <laughs> it's just interesting because it's like right, right before he like dies, right? You know, <laughs> and yeah. he's been for like 20 years, and then all of a sudden he's just yeah. Like, I think he just saw that the things, you know, it was it had to happen. There was just such a push for it. Daly also wanted the Teamsters to be the union. I think he had something going with them. <laughs> I think he was very disappointed when they went with FOP instead. Um, and, and why do you think it's important for like Chicagoans to kind of understand this this the the role of police unions in ongoing conversations around police reform? Like, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about the FOP or the history of police unions in Chicago uh, over the course of like researching and writing this article? I just realized how much power the union has. Like, you cannot even though there's a def- uh, consent decree going on, which means they established the after on McDonald incident. And so the, uh, the government, the Justice Department actually, they say that the Chicago Police Department has to reform. But there are all these things in the union contract that are against that. 
like the union contract says, you know, if a police officer is accused of misconduct, he or she has 48 hours, to, or, well, 24 hours, but it could be pushed to 48 hours to get their story into place. They'll know who's, you know, questioning them. It's only like you can't appeal, like there's only one appeal. If you, if you um, don't like your decision, it gets sent to arbitration. So really, it's really stacked in favor of the police which means that there's all sorts of misconduct coming, going around, and they're protected by their union. So how did, the, how did the consent decree, I'm just confused about how the consent decree even, is this, a, is this a, how it even kind of pa passed through with n knowing that it would butt up against all these union rules? Is this just uh, a, an issue that needs to be worked out in the courts between like unions and the federal government? Or is this something that's just kind of like more larger and intractable? The, it's larger than the union. The union tried to stop it, and they were overruled. They appealed it to so many courts, and the court said, no, you've got to do this. But and now, there are things mm. that the, po the police department can do without the union, but then there are some things, like they want to reduce the ratio of supervisors to officers, and that's in the union contract, so that has to be changed. Harry Brenner of the Chandeliers has been generously providing us with interstitial music. His new album, By the Numbers, is out this week on Potions. We are pleased to debut a new track off that LP. This is The Bum Rush. curiosity imagine science it is the age of the console so and as we as we move into the age of the console in in technical circles we're going to have to start adopting console or some call it gamer like language um, so that we can reach more of the uh, more of the citizen scientists out there is that is that the the audience we're really trying to reach to in this with this um, yes we believe that that gamers and uh, and scientists are going to be one and the same in, in the next few years oh, oh. So I want to talk a little bit about the text box 
chapter gamma. Um, so as I said, um, if you recall, the text box chapter gamma was a console that Tech Brothers released uh, a few few weeks before the holiday, maybe about a week before the holiday. I announced it on this show as it happened. And, uh, and since then, already around the world, millions of consoles were sold. The console buyback pro- uh, program where we uh, gave people the option to sell us their consoles that they bought in 2020 um, sells, and that we would buy back at retail price, uh, we've made great use of those pieces in our text box chapter gamma consoles by recycling and reusing every part part of those of those consoles. Um, and I mean, I have to say, people are people love what they're seeing. I've gotten tons of tons of uh, uh, correspondence, tons of tons of letters and emails and, and and messages on the new medias talking about how they love the modernist artistic uh, inspirations of the. I'm sure. Of the console and its packaging. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so uh, when we talked about this, right. as a matter of fact, every time we've talked about this, right. I am not much of a gamer. Mm-hmm. I play a video game on occasion, perhaps perhaps a nice relaxing farming simulator at the end of the day. But sure. the point being is that you have mentioned ad nauseum about this console. Right. And every time I ask about the games... Every time I ask about what actual games are on this console, you have no answer for me. So now that it is out, it is out, correct? Yes. Millions have been sold. Millions yes. have been sold. Millions have access okay, to this console. Okay, then what are millions of individuals playing on the text box chapter gamma? Well, Rowan, this is the ultigen. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.